At the end of the service, there'll be uh, other things that we want you to know. But before we jump into Ephesians chapter 4, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and turn there. I want you to know that we are starting a church in Tomball, Texas. Um, we have tentatively circled the beginning of December as the very first Sunday there, uh, which means we have a lot of work to do. And the way that we start churches here at Bayou City is the organization doesn't start a church, the people of the church start a church. And so uh, we have lots of work to do. And we're really excited about that work because it means that there are, there are probably thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Tomball right now who do not have a church family. And uh, we hope to make a difference. Uh, starting in December. And so if, if you live near Tomball or God has stirred your heart up to be a part of starting one of our churches, uh, the next Sunday night here, right here in this very room, uh, we'll have the very first core team gathering of Bayou City Tomball. We'll get together, we'll pray, we'll get to know one another. Uh, we'll talk about why, why are we doing this, just to remind ourselves the purpose behind it. And then we'll start doing some of the planning and the thinking and the strategizing. And so um, we have some who are already very committed and they're on the ground level. If you're like, I- I'm not really sure, that seems like a lot of work. My life is good right now. I don't really want to disturb that. Um, hey, don't tell the Lord that. He, uh, he, he loves to disturb things. Um, but uh, if you're just interested, uh, then come on and join us uh, next Sunday night. Being there is not a commitment of any kind. Uh, so next Sunday night, 6 o'clock right here, we do have some child care available uh, if that's a need of yours. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. You know, different cultures, different countries have their own vocabulary, even English-speaking countries. For example, in Australia, the entree is the appetizer. They call the main dish the main, uh, which is uh, not that creative. (laughs) In England, uh, you don't wear underwear, you wear pants. You don't eat cookies, you eat biscuits. And you don't eat chips, you eat crisps. Amanda and I lived in England for about five months, and on our second anniversary, we wanted to celebrate in London. We lived five hours northeast of London. So we decided that we were going to drive down there. We told the people at our church, we're going to go down here and and just spend our anniversary. And they said, well, if you're driving and not taking a train, then make sure you you pay the toll. And we understood what a toll was. Obviously, we have lots of tollways here in Houston. And so we started making the journey. We started getting into suburban London. We started looking for that toll. Never saw it. Uh, we got to our hotel in inner city London. Never saw the toll. Went back to our house a few days later. Waiting for us in the mail was a ticket. Because a toll in England is not a place with a gate and an opportunity to pay. It's a fee that you have to go into a specific store and pay for. Otherwise you get a ticket. Every Culture, every country has its own vocabulary. We spent the last month talking about the culture of Jesus' kingdom here on earth. And the kingdom of Jesus has a vocabulary. And that's what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, is talking about. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If you read Ephesians from beginning to end, and I'd encourage you to do it, it'd probably only take you about 12 or 13 minutes this afternoon. You'll notice that the book is split in half. 
perfectly. The first half is all about truth. What is true about you now that you belong to Jesus? You have spiritual blessings. Uh, Jews and Gentiles are no longer divided. We are one. Uh, We are loved with a love that we can't totally comprehend. We have an inheritance coming to us in the kingdom of uh, Jesus. It's split in half. The first half is the truth. The second half is the now what? Because all these things are true, now do this and stop doing that. And that's what Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 is. It's the don't do this, instead do this. Don't speak like this, start speaking like that. Now what's interesting is when the Ephesians would have heard verse 29 for the first time, they would have easily nodded their heads because they knew the power and influence of words. From the very beginning of the gospel there in Ephesus, they were experiencing the power of words. If you have a Bible, turn to, uh, to Acts chapter 19, and we'll see the beginning of the church in Ephesus and the influence of words. I'm not going to read these specific passages because it would take too long, but you can follow along if you have a Bible or you want to pull one out on your phone. When Paul came to Ephesus, he, he, he found a group of 12 willing disciples who committed themselves to Jesus. And it says right away, their words were influenced by the Spirit of Christ. They began to prophesy, which means that God put spontaneous messages in their mind and heart that they would not have otherwise known. And they began to speak in tongues, which... 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us are the tongues of angels. They were speaking in languages that they didn't know. They were praising God and extolling Jesus in a language that they didn't know. Maybe a language of heaven that no one on earth would understand. Right away their words were affected. Paul then used his words for three months teaching in the synagogue that Jesus was the Christ. It says he was reasoning with the Jewish people. This is the savior that God has sent to our historic people. They rejected him, and so then he spent two years reasoning in the same way with the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, that Jesus was the God, God's Savior, God's Messiah, not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole earth. And so effective was Paul in using his words for Jesus' sake that it says there in Acts chapter 19 that all of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, that entire region of the planet heard the word of the Lord. There were a group of Jewish exorcists. So these were Jewish men who tried to cast out demons. They were known as the sons of Sceva. And they were not being effective. So they thought, you know what? We've seen the Apostle Paul be effective in casting out demons. We would like to be effective. So here's what we're going to do. They found a demon-possessed person. And they tried to cast that demon out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They didn't believe in Jesus. They had not responded to Paul's message. So they were just trying to borrow Paul's authority and the authority that comes from the name of Jesus to cast these demons out. Well, you can guess what happened. The demon got pretty frustrated and came upon the sons of Sceva and embarrassed them in front of all the people of Ephesus. And so the scripture says that everyone in Ephesus lifted up the name of Jesus because of the embarrassment of the sons of Sceva. So even the words of non-believers are being affected by the gospel. Then it says people began to believe in Christ and come and confess their occultic practices. They were involved in dark magic, witchcraft. They begin to confess that. I want to bring my darkness out into the light. 
People began rejecting Artemis. She was the primary goddess worshipped in Ephesus. She had a giant temple there. But the business owners in the local community, they began to be frustrated because they made a lot of their money off of selling little trinkets that were connected to Artemis. So because so many people were believing in Jesus and not Artemis anymore, they were losing their income. So one of them, Demetrius, he began to stir up the other business owners. And he used his words to move them into a riot. And it says in Acts chapter 19 that for two hours they shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine shouting one chant for two hours? Yeah, if you're an Aggie or a Longhorn, of course you can. (laughs) The Apostle Paul wanted to use some of his words as these people are rioting and gathering to, to preach the gospel again. But the believers in Ephesus used their words to convince him not to do that because they knew that the rioters would kill him. And then the town clerk at the end of Acts chapter 19 used his words to calm and quiet the crowd and send them away. So when these Ephesians are reading this letter or hearing this letter from the Apostle Paul these years later and he says, here's what you should do and should not do with your mouth, they could not along. They understood the power and influence of words the same as we do. And you see in your listening guide, there are a few things that I want you to remember this morning. Number one, kingdom vocabulary does not corrupt. Kingdom vocabulary does not corrupt. That word corrupt is used to describe rotten vegetables or rotten trash. My first semester of college, I had a job picking up trash on my university campus. I started at the lowest level. When I got there, they handed me a bucket and assigned me a zone. And every piece of trash in that zone, I was responsible for picking up. You never realize how many people at college smoke until you're the one picking up their cigarette butts. So whatever was in my zone, cigarette butts, uh, trash, food, uh, dead animals, it didn't matter. I was responsible for that and I was good at it. I don't want to brag, but I was good at it. The reason that I know that is because they promoted me about a month later. And you would think a promotion would be a really great thing. But in this particular role, it was not. I did get to ride around on a gator, a mule. You know what I'm talking about? One of those uh, mini SUVs that people own. But the reason you got to ride along on that is because you would empty out the trash in the cans around campus. And there is no smell like rotting trash from a university campus. It was a good day if I only threw up three times. I just wanted to put that in your spirits. It was ungodly. It was unnatural. It was unholy. It was rotted. And this is the kind of talk that Paul is saying in the kingdom of Jesus, we, we don't do this. We don't speak with words that cause rot. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus used that same word in a parable to talk about the separating of fish, the fish that you want to keep and the fish that are no good to keep. So we only speak words that are worth keeping. Words that are not worth keeping should never come out of our mouth. They're corrupt. And they do corrupt. And they corrupt everything. And everyone. For example, take a gossip conversation. 
There's at least three people involved in that conversation. There's you. It's a triangle. There's you. There's the person that you're talking about. And there's the person that you're talking to. And if Paul is right through the spirit of God. That this kind of talk. This rotten, rotting talk corrupts. It corrupts everyone in that triangle. Like an infection that spreads. It corrupts the person that you're talking about. Because now their reputation is harmed. What the other person used to think about them no longer thinks about them. The respect that you all had for this person now you don't have quite as much. It has corrupted the person you're talking about. It also corrupts the person that you're talking to. Now you've negatively influenced their life. Maybe they used to have good will and good thinking and good heart towards this person. But now you've infected that. And it even corrupts you. It ruins you as you speak it. It's corruptive. It's rotten. Now you might say, well, sometimes I need wisdom. Sometimes I'm in a conflict with somebody and I need a third person to, to bounce that off of, to get good counsel from. Sometimes I just need to vent. That's good and that's true. So how do I know when I've crossed the line? Well, in verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 4, we have a guide. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So if any of these are your motives for speaking, you know you've crossed the line into corruptive talk. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You know bitterness when you bite into it, it's sour and you cringe. Right? If you speak out of a sour heart or attitude towards someone you've crossed the line it's corruptive talk anger and wrath are connected we all know what it's like to be angry Ang anger is like boiling water and wrath is the point of where the water starts to spill out so if you're angry with someone as we all are from time to time and you let that boil inside of you and then it starts spilling out on a specific person that you're mad at or on everyone else i want to punish them i want vengeance it's corruptive talk we see this in luke chapter 4 jesus is speaking in the synagogue in nazareth his hometown and he says some very honest and confrontational things to them and they get frustrated and their anger starts to boil. In fact, it boils over by them taking him to the edge of the town where there's a cliff. They want to throw him off the cliff so that he dies. It's anger that turned into wrath. And if wrath or anger is your motive for speaking, that's rotten. That's rotting. That's infecting. That's corruptive. Clamor is the sound of controversy. Years ago, I took a job at a church and it was a great church until the third Sunday. And on the third Sunday, the, the, the church was voting on a new minister. And people didn't like him or some people didn't like him. And so as the senior pastor is talking about the merits of this new potential pastor, someone comes and stands right next to me. I'm on the very edge of the pew. Comes and stands next to me and then starts shouting at the pastor from the ground to the stage. And I kind of inch over, you know, I don't want to be associated with this person. <laughs> starts screaming at him in front of everybody. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
They didn't put this in the brochure when I was coming to work at this church. They weren't like, we're great, except for we hate one another. <laughs> and so he's talking to the pastor. He's talking to this person that the church is getting ready to hire. Obviously, the conversation is not really going anywhere. And it was like they had practiced. And on cue, about 100 people stand up, turn around, and march out the back of the church. And then we voted, and it was like 100% unanimous, you know, because everybody that didn't like him was gone. That's clamor. It's the sound of controversy. Did you hear? Can you believe? I don't understand. That's never going to work. Wherever there is controversy, the sound around it, the conversations around it, that's clamor. And if clamor is your motive for speaking about it, if controversy is the motive for speaking, Paul says that's corruptive and it doesn't belong in the kingdom of Jesus. Then there's malice, or then there's slander. Uh, The word for slander is a Greek word, blasphemia which you can hear the word blaspheme. And in the scripture, when it's used to describe God, it's translated as blaspheme. But when it's used to describe a human, it's translated as slander. But it's really the same idea. Blasphemy is disrespect towards God and slander is disrespect towards people who are made in God's image. And if this is what we're doing with our conversations, if this is what we're doing with our words, it's corrupting. It's corrupting them. It's corrupting the person we're talking to and it's corrupting us. And then malice is just good old fashioned. I don't like that person. Not that any of us would know about that. We all need wisdom. We all need to vent. We all need different perspective. But if any of these are our motive for speaking, Paul says that's out of bounds when it comes to the kingdom of Jesus. Second thing I want you to write down, kingdom vocabulary builds up. So it shouldn't be used to corrupt. It should be used to build up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Corinthians have picked sides. They've all picked their favorite teachers who have come through Corinth to tell them about Jesus, and they've formed little clubs. Some are saying, I'm in the Paul club. Some are saying, I'm in the Paulos club. Some are saying, I'm in the Peter club. And they're debating about which of their clubs are better. And so Paul is writing this letter to just say, this is foolishness. What are you doing? And he says in that context, for we are God's fellow workers. So he's speaking about him and Peter and Apollos. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. He says to the church of Corinth, you are what God is building and we are workers. And that's what Paul means later on in Ephesians chapter 4 when he's talking about our words. We are all God's building project. He's creating us, fashioning us, building us up to become the people he wants us to be. And he has delegated the responsibility of that back down to us. So we are all his subcontractors. As he's building each of us individually, one another have a role to play. Just like in your home, some, some, some contractor laid your tile, some put in your cabinets, some laid the carpet, some did the plumbing. As God is building up each and every one of us, we all, each and every one of us have a role to play through our words, through our encouragement. So we ask ourselves, are these words that I'm saying, 
Will they help anyone be faithful to Jesus? Will it help lift them? Will it put wind in their sails? Will it put a desire for the scripture in their heart? Will it encourage them to pray? Because I have a responsibility and you have a responsibility to build one another up. So our words become our tools. And yet it's so easy to use our words as weapons. That's what Proverbs chapter 12 says, describes. Verse 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Are your words being used to build up in Jesus' name or are they cutting? Are your words healing or are they wounding? Number three, kingdom vocabulary fits the occasion. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion. This is the moment of need. One commentator described it as packing for a trip. So when my family goes on a road trip, we we don't just hop in the car. We have to mentally prepare for that because we have children. God bless us. We have children. God bless them. But you don't get in the car and hope for 15 buckies along the way. There's not that much grace in the world. So we pack our bags. We pack a cooler. We pack our snacks. We have a a young one, so we pack the right amount of diapers. We're trying to do the mental math of how many diapers that we're going to need. Those things are expensive. You don't want to waste them. We think about everything, and we pack accordingly for our trip. And that's what Paul is communicating when he says, speak a word that fits the occasion. As all of us are journeying through this life, trying to be faithful to Jesus, God may give you a word that is going to be what this other person needs along the way. It may be a a, a word of direction or just a word of encouragement. Maybe they're slowing down. Faithfulness to Jesus is hard for them in this moment. You know, just a few minutes ago, we sang uh, that song, uh, you are good, you are good. And in the phrase, uh, in, the, in the song, it says, uh, you're never going to let me down. And I would guess half of us sort of stopped singing at that moment. Because maybe for right now, that's not true for you. God has let you down and he has let you down in some very specific ways. At least that's how it looks right now. And if you're in that moment, as we all are from time to time, I've been praying for this and I believe it is a good thing. I don't believe it's going to cost God anything. I don't understand why he would not just fix it. You need someone to come along and say, hey, just keep going. I know it doesn't look like it right now, but I've been there. And you will see God's goodness on the other side of that but someone needs to put that in their bag. Someone needs to make sure it got checked off the list when they were getting in the car. It's a moment of need. 
Proverbs chapter 12, same chapter as we were in just a second ago, gives us an example. In verse 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. When we're anxious, we need, we need somebody's good word to calm us down. When we feel burdened, we need someone's good word to lift us up. In just a few minutes, we're going to pray together because we finish all of our gatherings by praying for one another here. And this happens every week. We come forward for prayer, weighed down. We receive a good word in prayer. We receive truth in prayer as we ask God for the things that we need together. And we leave back to our seats a little bit lighter because it fits the occasion. But most of us are careless with our words. To give words that are fit for the occasion and the moment of need, you need discernment and you need empathy. It has to be intentional. But most of us are careless. We don't think about the words that come out of our mouth. You know, it's funny, when we're angry at somebody, we plan every word that we are going to say to them and then rarely say it. Maybe this is just me. But I am such a good arguer in my head. They're going to say this, and then I'm going to say that, and then they're going to say, yeah, but, but then I'm going to hit them with a right hook. Not, not literally. Well, it depends on how mad I am at them. But metaphorically with my words, and then they're just going to start weeping and crying And then I'm going to shake the dust off my feet. And of course, I never say any of that. And you never say any of that. We plan almost all of the words that we never say. And the words that we do say, we never plan. They just tumble out of our mouth. Whether out of anger or out of nothing. They just come out carelessly. Matthew chapter 2. 12, Jesus says these horrifying words that we, I, you, are going to give an account for every careless word. I don't think there'll be a line at the judgment, but if there is, make sure you're not behind me because I am in big trouble when I get there. But we have to move from careless to careful because when we speak to one another, it needs to fit the occasion. And then finally, Kingdom vocabulary gives grace. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now I know what many of us are thinking. This is great, except for I'm mad and they were wrong. They were wrong and they deserve it. This thing that I'm saying about them is true. And they deserve it. And I'm mad. And that's why I think God, through the Spirit, inspired Paul to say these beautiful and terrible words in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. Yeah, but they don't really deserve forgiveness. As God and Christ forgave you. I didn't, even, I didn't deserve forgiveness either. But God in Christ forgave me. Now I'm supposed to forgive other people. We always feel justified in the things that we say. 
Almost always we feel justified. But what if we were wrong? When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the guards took him back, not to the Romans, but to the chief priests, the rulers of Israel. That's where Jesus was first tried, in the home of a priest. It was the priest who sentenced Jesus to death. And you know why they did that? Because they felt justified. See, they were the leaders, the local leaders of Israel. The Roman Empire was really the authority. And the Romans had this amazing policy that if you could keep your own peace, we'll sort of stay out of your business. I mean, there was lots of Roman presence in Israel in the first century, but for the most part, they delegated a lot of the local leadership to those local leaders in Israel. And the chief priests were primarily responsible, and Jesus is a troublemaker in their mind. He's stirring up people, he's teaching in the temple, he's got loads of followers, he's got lots of people who hate him. We don't need this. So the ends justified the means. They found people to give false witness against Jesus, not because they believed Jesus said those things and meant those things, but because ultimately they just needed peace so they could remain in power and everything would be the way that it was status quo. So they felt justified in sending him to the Roman governor Pilate as being sentenced to death. They didn't want to get their hands dirty and actually be the ones to kill him. So they said, we'll let Pilate do that. But Pilate starts interviewing Jesus and he says, I don't find any guilt here. These are just internal squabbles and theological debates among you. And then those same priests, priests of God to serve in God's temple, start crucify, crucify, crucify. And then the crowd is like, yeah, crucify, crucify, crucify. And Jesus died Because of the powerful influence of justified words. We always feel justified in talking about other people. But what if it was still corrupting, even if it was true? What if instead of offering rotten talk, we extended goodwill instead. We offered grace and favor. Psalm 141, verse three, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Two weeks ago, I was visiting someone in the hospital and the hospital was getting ready to open up a brand new wing and you could see it there. It was already finished. They just hadn't had the grand opening yet. So they put a security guard right in front of it just to make sure nobody went in there and messed with things. The problem is the security guard had his ear buds in and was totally engrossed in whatever was happening on his phone. So you could have gone in and out of that section as much as you wanted and he would have never noticed. About a year and a half ago, I was invited to tag along with a criminal justice high school class to take a tour of the jail. So being an odd person, I was like, of course I would like to see that. And if I'm going to have to go to jail, I would like to go under these circumstances, invited and called ahead for 
When we got downtown, this particular jail didn't look like a jail. In fact, it was built to just sort of blend in with the rest of the downtown skyline. So you wouldn't know. Even when you went inside the lobby, you you really couldn't tell that it was a jail. And they led us back through some corridors. And then you knew because we were standing in front of a gate. And a gate really is not the best way to describe it. It was like a wall. And next to the wall was a security guard in a very bulletproof secure booth so he knew who we were we had the right people with us they opened up the gate we stepped inside and then he closed that gate and for as long as I live I will never forget the sound of that thing closing because once it closed there wasn't anything getting out without his permission Psalm 141 says set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. And I just wonder for me and for you, what kind of guard we've placed there. The distracted one or the effective one. The kingdom of Jesus has vocabulary. And lips that confess Jesus as Lord are held to a higher standard. And in the kingdom of Jesus, vocabulary doesn't destroy or rot or infect. It builds. Let's pray.